It's been a blessing to worship with you today. It's been a just aren't you been haven't you been blessed by the choir and the special music and singing today? It's made our Lord's Day very, very special. I don't know about you. I suspect that many of you are like I am and you long to know that you have been used of God in some way. You just long to be used of God. If you're an old timer, maybe you remember that song that we used to sing a long time ago. To be used of God. You remember that song? To be used of God to sing, to speak, to pray. To be used of God to show someone the way. We don't sing it anymore, but it's a beautiful old song. And I was on, listening to one of these old-fashioned radio programs one day over by Lake Michigan. I heard Helen Barth come on the radio and sing that. It reminded me of my mother's song. That's my long. I just want to be used of God. I want to know I did something that made a difference for God. And I, I know there are many of you that give up yourselves in labor for the Lord here in many different ways, some very quietly and behind the scenes, and some of our young people, and some in music, and you just want to be used of God. I want to be used of God. I really want to be used of God. And I feel myself getting older and thinking, you know, how many more years do I have? I'm, I'm a lot younger than most of you, but um, how many more years do I have and what am I going to accomplish, you know, for the Lord? And, and uh, in the years that I have to come, could I hope to be used of God? I, I have a great longing for my for my family and my kids to be used of God, to go out in the world and make a difference for God, and to see that they, they made a difference. And, and lately the Lord's just been stirring me in a great way to think that he's privileged me to be one of the pastors here. This is a, a church of hundreds of covenant members, or over 500 members of this church, over 500 members of this church, what if 500 of God's children ask God, use me, God, use me? What would happen if 500 of God's children said, God, use me? <laughs> Pretty amazing, isn't it? I was talking with a young guy, a young pastor, and he was kind of praying and thinking and seeking placement in, in ministry as a, as a teaching, as a preaching pastor. And he was talking to me about that. He was talking to me about his resume. And he was talking to me about what needs to be on his resume. He's talking to me about, you know, the kind of education that needs to show up on his, on his resume. He's talking a little bit about the kind of skills that he would need to have to be a, a teaching pastor, a preaching pastor, a lead pastor. And um, while I was talking to him, it just came to my heart so clearly. What I wanted to talk with you about tonight, and that is that the chief shepherd, that's a name for Jesus in First Peter, who will appear someday. The chief shepherd, he watches over his church. A great church, army of Christians all over the world. And they're divided up into little flocks here and there. Tiny some, bigger some, flocks all over the world. And he appoints under shepherds over those flocks. And to work among those flocks. And it doesn't really matter so much that your resume sparkles. And it doesn't really matter so much that you've honed your speaking skills or your leadership skills. But the chief shepherd that looks out over his flock is looking for men who are, have the heart of Christ, the, the chief shepherd. Holy men 
Godly men. Every, every little burg and hamlet and village and city and suburb in, in this nation and all around the world ought to have a holy man. A man who is a, a man after God's own heart. Daniel, in chapter 4, three times in chapter 4 of Daniel, they're looking for a man in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Three times it says it. Chapter 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse uh, 18. Three times. In whom is the spirit of the holy God. Even unbelievers could tell that he had the spirit of God on him. The Holy Spirit on him. And there was a holiness about his life. And so it doesn't matter so much what's on our resumes, what's on our, it's in our skill set. What matters most to a holy God is if he has holy people. Because it's holy people that God will use. And this is a wonderful thing to think about. I left my clicker. Let's go get that. And so I can click through some slides for you here tonight. And we're going to move really fast and go through a bunch of scripture tonight. And I want you to see this. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21 says, If a man cleanses himself from the latter, I believe he's talking there in that passage about things that are unclean. He'll be a vessel for honor. He'll be sanctified and useful for the master. He'll be prepared for every good work. This is a message about that God uses people whose lives are pure and clean. And, and the, the aspiration of holiness. That scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, a passage that we often use when we have communion, let a man, this is true for women too, let a man, let a woman examine himself. A man examine himself. God wants us to perform a spiritual self-examination every time we come to the Lord's table. And that's why, thank you for coming tonight. Bless you for coming tonight. This shows your devotion as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you desire to be here tonight when you could do other things. And yet you say, no, the most important thing to me is that I would be with God's people, that I would examine myself, that I would obey the ordinance of the church that Jesus gave to us, that I would, the older you get in the Lord, are you like I am? The older you get in the Lord, the more you look forward to communion. The more you look forward to that time of communion. Scottish minister that we often quote, Robert Merman Shane, he, he, his um, memoirs were gathered together by a guy named Andrew Bonar. And it's a wonderful classic. You should get a copy of it if you don't have it. The Memory and Remains of Robert Murray Machane. Wonderful, wonderful book. And in it he has these letters that he writes. And you can just, you can, you can smell the fragrance of Christ in the letters that he wrote to people. I mean, I, you know, think about that. If people look through your emails... Would, they, would your emails, your correspondence, have the fragrance of Christ on it? Would it be worth writing down if people looked through your Facebook status? Would it have the fragrance of Jesus on it? If people saw your, they were to read your mail, would it be worth gathering and putting it? With Robert Mermichain, that's the way it was. He wrote a, a letter to a young man named Dan Edwards who, who aspired to the ministry. And I hope that every one of you tonight aspires to the ministry. I'm not necessarily talking about pastoral ministry. I'm talking about the ministry of the Word of God to people. Serve in the Lord. Uh, come, grow, serve. That's the plan here, isn't it? Come, grow, serve. Okay, I'm here and I'm growing. Where do you want me to serve God? What do you want me to do? And then to be used of God in the service, you've got to have holiness of life. These are the ones that are vessels unto honor, sanctified and useful to the Master. As the scripture says, there are vessels in a household that are of honorable purposes and are vessels for honorable purposes. Robert Remachane said to young Dan Edwards, who was preparing for the ministry, and I quote, Remember, 
You are God's sword, His instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto Him to bear His name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. Maybe we would say today, a holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hands of God. That's not just true about pastors. That's true about every worker for Christ. A person has holiness. That person is going to make a difference in the ministry. And the Scriptures say, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-5, through 5, this is the will of God. Your sanctification that you would abstain from sexual immorality, for instance. That each of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, in there's the word again, sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like Gentiles who don't know God. In this particular passage, Paul is talking about moral purity. And he's saying you're going to look different than the people that are around you. You're going to be morally pure. You're going to, you're going to be sanctified. You're going to be, you're going to be holy. God desires for you to be holy. Paul, um, coaching Titus on how to establish a godly church in a very pagan, the pagan isle of Crete. He describes the character that God desires of Christians there in Titus 2, 11-14. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. You're going to see this is a theme in the Bible. Looking for the blessed hope, glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. I'm doing a flyover here of passages of Scripture that talk about your sanctification, your holiness, which God requires of us. In other words, we're examining ourselves tonight. I'm helping you to examine yourself as you approach the Lord's table to ask yourself the question, is God's holiness on my life? And I'm using the Scriptures to help as a tool of self-examination for you tonight. So I love you. That's why I'm doing this. And I don't take you through anything that the Lord hasn't taken me through first. What a, what a rich thing it is for God's people to humble themselves and examine themselves and ask, oh God, is, is my heart pure? Are my lips pure? Are my motives pure? Are my deeds right? Am I growing in holiness? These are good things to ask ourselves. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth to correct the saints, the sins that were charged in the Corinthian church was messed up, wasn't it? He, he offers them promises of God, promises of intimacy with God. And there, you can see it there in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, promises of intimacy, son and daughters, we cleanse ourselves from all... This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We cleanse, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. We cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Paul said it to the Corinthian church. Peter quoted Leviticus in his first epistle, encouraging those who were refugees there to be holy, even though they were refugees. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But he who has called you is holy, and you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, be holy, for I'm holy. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, casting a vision for them to be what God wants them to be. And it was rich, you know, when you, when you read the first chapter of Ephesians, you see that he's just kind of showing them who they are in Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
And in chapter 5, verse 27, in the marriage passage there, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. God wants you to be holy. He did the same thing with the Philippian church, Paul. When when the Philippian church was struggling with division, like all churches do sometimes, in Philippians 2, 14-16, he says, Do all things without complaining and without disputing, that you may be blameless, harmless, the children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holy fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. You see, it's the same thing. Paul told the Romans that when we become slaves to sin, we'll be ashamed. Remember that in chapter 6? But that when we become slaves of God, it will produce holiness in us. But now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit unto holiness, and the end is everlasting life. You have a command, repeated command in the Bible to be holy, but you have implied promises that you can be holy. So when we come to the communion table, it's a good thing every month, as, we, as our custom is to practice the Lord's uh, Supper every month for us to say, how has there been holiness in my life? And in what ways am I lacking in personal holiness? And examine yourself. And, and, um, and the Scriptures here give these beautiful promises. The writer of Hebrews explained that God will discipline us like a good father. For the purpose of producing His holiness in us. And this holiness is for our own good. Hebrews 12.10 For they, this is our fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. You guys remember that? You remember that happening to you? Did you have a good dad like me who chastened you? Is that a happy little Bible word for getting the stuff that's beat out of you from time to time? Loving discipline is what I'm talking about. I, you know, I'm privileged, as you know, I told you, maybe you are too, that you have a mother or father that discipline you with love. So that, and, and you have a heavenly father who disciplines you too and who holds your feet to the fire and who chastises you and who chastens you because he wants to produce holiness in you so that you can be partakers of his holiness. That's a, one, that's a very clear command, but it's a wonderful promise implied, isn't it? Isn't it? This passage is saying that we can be partakers of his holiness. So that's wonderful, but it takes discipline. He's going to chastise us. And, and, you know, so we can examine ourselves or we can, you know, he can, he can come after us or we can go to him. And a lot better if you tell him before he comes to get you. Right? Your child of God is going to come and get you. Wouldn't, isn't it a lot better if you say, hey, there's something you need to know? He goes, I know. I just want to be the first one to tell you. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. How wonderful when a child comes and says, Mom, Dad, you know, this is wrong. I knew you'd want to know. Here, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about my relationship with you. So it is. My son Daniel, he plays soccer for Grace Bible College over in Grand Rapids, and I got to watch him play soccer uh, the other couple weeks ago. And um, that's fun to do. You know how you look, we all, I think we all here love watching our kids play ball. D- Daniel, number 15, he's going up a, a, against another kid, number 15. The other kid, handsome. Uh, African-American kid, big smile, great athlete. You could just tell he was very, very good. Dan plays defense, so this guy's uh, strike is an offense. Dan's got to stay with this kid all day. He does at one point, uh, he knocked Daniel down. I was watching, you know, he knocked Daniel down. It looked like he hurt him a little bit. He got up and he's kind of favoring his arm, and the young man 
kind of, you could tell he consoled him. He kind of pat him on the back like he was a great sport. You could tell the kid was a great sport. And um, after the game, Daniel told me something that happened on the field that I didn't see and I couldn't hear. Daniel said one of the guys on his team swore. It's Bible college. Everybody who goes there is training for the ministry. And so it's grievous to think that people who name the name of Christ can on the same lips that they take the name of Christ, they can curse and, and swear. James, pastor of the Jerusalem church, says these things ought not so to be. Here's a young guy cursing on the soccer field and he's training for the ministry. And the young man that was guarding Daniel, the fellow I was telling you about, the ball goes away from him, and he comes over to him, and he says to him, Hey, can I ask you a question? He says to the kid who was swearing, Can I ask you a question? Are you on the broad road, or are you on the narrow road? Yeah. He says, Come on, I want to know. And the guy kind of blew him off, like ignored him. And a little bit later on, he came back down the field with a big smile, big radiant, Christ-like, spirit-filled smile on his face. He says, Come on, man, let's talk about that. I need to know, are you on the broad road or are you on the narrow road? i got to tell you, I didn't really care what the score was. I liked that story. Daniel said later on in the locker room, the guy on his team, probably you know, trying to save face, was making fun of the kid who challenged him. You wouldn't do something like that if you were challenged, would you? If you got a challenge from another Christian about your holiness of life, your language your heart, your love, your sincerity, you wouldn't make fun, would you? you? Would you tremble before God? Would you care if your life was right? Would you care if your Savior who died for you was not pleased with the way that you talk? Would you care if your Savior who died for you was not pleased with the way you talk? Would you care? Would you care if your Savior who died for you, was not pleased with the thoughts that you allow in your mind, would you care? Would you care if your Savior who died for you, who shed His blood for you, who ever lives to make intercession for you, your Savior who's going to come back for you someday, would you care if He was dishonored by your anger? Wouldn't it be right to come to communion and say, Oh God, forgive me. Forgive me my talk. Forgive my selfishness. Forgive my sinful silence. Forgive my anger. God, forgive my desire for earthly gain and my, my, my carelessness about eternal things. Isaiah 35, verses 8 and 9. There's a highway that will be there. It's a road. The Bible says it's a highway of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it, but it shall be for others. The redeemed shall walk there. You say, I'm a Christian. I say, well, okay, where's the holiness in your life? You say, well, I, I know the gospel. I, I said, the demons know the gospel. Where's the holiness in your life? You say, well, I, I signed a card. I walked in aisle. My mama told me I was saved. I didn't ask you that. I said, where's the holiness in your life? You say you know Jesus Christ. I say, where's the holiness in your life? If you know Jesus, how can there not be growing holiness in your life? How can you not be grieved when you sin? God desires for us to be holy. And God also desires for your home to be holy. I, I just, just think about this passage there. 
in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, in verse 14, you might be sitting here and thinking, well, I'm, you're a Christian woman and your, your husband is an unbeliever. And you say, how can my home be holy? Stuff happens in my home because my husband's an unbeliever. Or maybe you're a Christian man. You have an unbelieving wife and she just does or says things that just don't please you. But you can have a holy home. That's what the scripture says. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. As if we care for the sanctification of a home. Unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise the children would be unclean. But now they are, they are holy. God wants our children to be holy. God wants our homes to be sanctified. And he wants to have at least one believer in every home who says, in this house, there's a beating heart. That as long as this heart is beating, its highest desire is going to be that there will be an expression of sanctification, holiness in this house, among these children. That means your TV should be sanctified. That means your music should be sanctified. That means your movie choices should be sanctified. That means your talk around the dinner table should be sanctified. That means if you speak in an unloving, unkind way about other people in this church, in your house, you should repent of that and ask God to forgive you and then come to the table. I love those that you love, God. I love those you died for. I desire holiness in my life. How, how can you get kids to be holy? You can preach to them. You can punish them if they're not. It's a little bit like the time that I decided I was going to teach my son to change oil in the car by telling him how to do it instead of showing him. So I said, you crawl into the car there and you, 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 you take out the drain plug. And here's the wrench. And so he crawls under the car. I'm not real mechanical. I forget things like let the oil cool down first, you know, things like that. So Kyle crawls under the car that autumn day, and he's going to change the oil. I'm not showing him. I'm just telling him. I'm not under the car. He's the one under the car. He pulls the drain plug, and when the oil starts to spurt out, it, the drain plug doesn't come out all the way, so it spurts out over toward him, and it's hot. He's like, he lurches, and he bumps his head on the bottom of the car, and then the drain plug doesn't come all the way out, and then the rest of the oil empties itself on his shirt, and it's hot. So he scrambled out from underneath of the car, and he said, I don't want to change oil anymore. I think he pays somebody else to change his oil now. And how you do it. You know, you've you got to show them how to do it. It's like tying a tie or a bow tie. I don't know what it is with girls. Probably the deft use of a curling iron. I don't know what it is. You, you can't just tell them, you know. You can't just tell somebody how to tie a tie. You just can't. You can't get on the phone and go, you take the fat part, you put it over the skinny part, you tuck it around the top, and then you bring it around the side, and then you tuck it again. All of a sudden, the person's like, ah, I'm sorry, I don't get this. Show me. Show me. I'm not going to get this until you show me. I hear that. You hear that? I hear our young people in our church going, I hear you talking. Show me what it looks like. I can almost hear their voices. I heard your fancy talk, Pastor. Show me what it looks like. I hear you talking, but I needed somebody to show me what that looks like. So I think when we as a church come to the communion table, that's a good time for us to examine ourselves and say, is there holiness in my life like God wants holiness in my life? Is my home a holy place like God wants my home to be a holy place? And if we let go of that, month after month, we're going we're gonna to 
become something very ugly and displeasing the Lord and not honoring the Lord. But if at least once a month we have a time of self-examination, we say, God, my heart is grieved. I'm sad my home isn't holier than it is. Would you help me? I'm going to start again. And you get on your knees and you make amends and you seek forgiveness and you admit your sin. Show me, they're saying. Show me. Don't just tell me. God desires for us to be holy. You've seen that in the Scriptures. God desires for our homes, for your home to be a holy home. And this is the thing that's been on my mind a lot. God wants evangel to be a holy church. He wants us to be holy more than he wants us to be busy. He wants us to be holy. He's not impressed with, hey, look how many programs we're running, God. He's not impressed with that. He looks right past all of that. And he wants to see his evangel a holy church. That's what church is supposed to be about. We gather together and we're in covenant unity with one another to hold one another accountable to live lives of holiness before God. And we're in serious danger of losing that, not in the church at large, in this church right here. We're in serious danger of losing that in this church right here. If God's people don't grieve over lapses of holiness, evidence of sin, if we don't grieve over how we've grieved the Lord, then this church will not be a holy church. It will not really be a church if it's not a holy church. This assembly should be a place where you come together and you stimulate one another spiritually. You stimulate one another to holiness of life. This is what we should be thinking 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2 says this very clearly. It's talking about the Corinthian church, and they had lots of serious problems. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. This is Corinth. They were messed up, right? They had things that we didn't want to talk about going on in the church. And here's how he starts. To the church of God that is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, I'm reminding you that you are, and in this sanctified, he's talking about the past aspect of their sanctification, their salvation, their justification, and that they're called to be saints, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, Lord, both theirs and ours. Three things I notice in this. The church is made up of people whose sins have been dealt with by Jesus. They're sanctified. The word means set apart, consecrated, sacred, uh, this is, this is a, a, a noun that refers to anybody who's saved in the church is a saint. Sanctifies the idea. A New Testament believer belonging exclusively to God. Saints are the church. People called out of the world to be God's people. That's what a saint is, according to the Bible. There are traditions, they have other definitions of saint, but I'm talking about the Bible right now. Set apart for God, exclusively His. Vine says it's used of men and things insofar as they are devoted to God. These are called saints, sanctified, holy ones. Sainthood is not an attainment. It is a state into which God, in His grace, calls men and women. So the church is made up of people whose sins have been dealt with by Jesus. When before God you're seen as righteous before God, then you are a saint in in the biblical sense of the word. You get it? 
But the church is made up of people who are called to be growing in holiness. So it says in that second phrase, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You're called to be growing in holiness. So I'm just asking you, what evidence of growing holiness is there in your life? The people that live with you should be able to see it. The people you work with should be able to tell you. It shouldn't be a secret. It's not a mystery. It should show up in your life. Holiness is beautiful. And so you should be becoming more beautiful in holiness. This, is, this is, uh, was not true of the Corinthian church as it should have been. And so Paul was giving them something to live up to and reminding them of who they are and whose they are. And he's writing a letter, and this letter has survived because it's God's Word and it's been passed to us. And so now we are at the communion table, and I have some questions to ask you. Are you holy? Are your words holy? You say, I'm holy, but my words aren't holy. No, if your words aren't holy, you're not holy. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians 5, 3-7. Fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. If you're greedy, you're not holy, right? If you're covetous and unclean, you're not holy. Verse 4, neither filthiness or foolish talking or coarse jesting. If you're filthy or foolish talking or coarse jesting, you're not holy. You may not even be saved. If, it does, if, you, if you can hear me talk as a pastor to you about that, and that's the way your life is and you don't care, you're probably not saved. I'm not judging you. I'm just helping you out. Like if, you know, if you go to the doctor and you want him to tell you that you have appendicitis, but you really have cancer, he isn't a good doctor unless he tells you you have cancer. And so if we're, you know, the tongue is the dipstick of the heart, so if you can talk filthy and coarse jesting and, and that doesn't convict you, then I would just suggest that you go ask the Lord, am I saved? Am I really saved? Or am I just kind of Christianized from going to church and being in Christian home, being around nice people? I was talking with, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I'm in the back, I'm talking with a handful of the, not the youngest guys in the church tonight, just talking to them. There's like three or four or five of them are all gathered around there talking to me. And it's like one of them was waiting for the other one to quit talking so they could tell about their story about witnessing. And my heart just longed to think, is it going to be that way 20 or 30 years from now? that the kids in our church would stand around the back door and talk about how they long to witness to other people. Is it going to be like that? It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that unless something changes. Unless we examine our hearts at a night like this, oh, God, make me a guy like Daniel, one that anybody would say, God lives in him. I can see his love. I can see his holiness. I can see the way she talks. I can see the way she loves. She's, there's something going on in her that only God could have done. Are your words? Scriptures say not filthiness, not foolish talking, not coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving a thanks. Can I say something to you if you're working on this? Um, is a good idea. I heard from a from another person. They said, if you're working on 
progress in holiness and the area of saying words you shouldn't say, then do what this passage says. Replace words you shouldn't say with expressions of thanksgiving. That's what it says, but rather giving of thanks. Let's be that kind of people. How simple is that? People walk on this property and we're playing ball or we're doing Sunday school or we're standing there and when they hear us, we don't talk like the world talks. If you go out there and you play ball, you talk like the world talks, shame on you. Shame on you. That shouldn't happen on this property. And if your kids are doing that because they heard you talk that way at home, shame on you. God forbid. You should be shocked. You should be scared. You should be repentant. You should not take communion tonight until you're right with God. I say that under the authority of God's word. Let's, let's humble ourselves. And if there's something I'm missing here, may God show us that too. Are your words holy? Because if your words aren't holy, your, your life isn't holy. For this we know no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Do not be partakers with them. Don't, please don't get angry with me. I'm trying to really be direct and honest and helpful. I don't want to talk about things nobody's doing. I want to talk about the way it really is here in this church. I'm your pastor. I love you. We're gonna, I'm going to answer the Lord someday. You guys had good pastors before me, and I want to be a faithful pastor now. The idea, the, the very idea of our church taking, slipping backwards in holiness of life is a horrifying idea. We ought to all have a big prayer meeting and ask, oh God, please, not now, not here, please, don't let us be influenced by the world around us. Let us be the ones who influence the world around us. Please, God. Please, God. I think we need, I think we have reason to be broken. I think we have reason to be pleading with God. I think we have reason for, for uh, maybe a fresh kind of prayer meeting. Come together and just plead with God for that. Are your, are your deeds, are they, are they holy? Are your words holy? Are your thoughts holy? God knows your thoughts, and I certainly don't, but he knows every one of them. Are they holy? Are your attitudes holy? Some of you might be saying, I like the message so far because you just like shooting at other people and you're not hitting me. Well, this one got you. Because you, you tell me you, you have a perfectly Christ-like attitude all the time, and then I will tell you you have another problem. You're delusional. You, or you're lying. You, you, you know, I know. I know I've been around people that would never swear, never steal, never drink, never smoke, never go to a bad movie. Their attitude stinks all the time. Amen? <laughs> Come on, seriously, you've been around church? And like, you know, it's like you have, it's like crabby is a, is a virtue. No, it's not. Just because you're a fundamentalist doesn't mean you can beat up everybody all the time, you know, for fun and profit. Amen? Our attitudes. May God 
give us these, is our love sincere and our motives as well. I, I hope I've helped you tonight. I trust that I have. All I've really done tonight is I told you what God's been kind of crushing my heart about. You know, That's all I did. All I've done here tonight is I passed along to you what I think the Spirit of God was telling me about me and my family. And um, so could we agree together tonight? Could we agree together? Jesus is my king. He's the one who died for me. I want my life to conform to his. I want his holiness. He wants me to be holy. I want to be holy. He wants me to have a holy home. I want to have a holy home. He wants evangel to be a holy church. I want to help make evangel a holy church. Can we agree? Do we agree? Do we have a oneness of mind about that? And it doesn't matter how bad you've been. Maybe I just worked you over tonight and, and I've discouraged you. Look at this passage. Don't you know unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, and covetous, and drunkards, and revilers, extortioners, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> this is a great verse, isn't it? And such were some of you. It, the church job is not to go out and gather all the nice people together in one place. <laughs> right? The church's job is not to go find all the intact families who've never fornicated, all the people who've never had confusion in their moral life, to gather all the people who've never been drunk, who've never been homosexual. It's not our job to go find all the nice people and, and then say they were Christian. That is not our job. It's not our job. What is our job? It's to find thieves and idolaters and fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and covetous and drunkards and revilers. They're everywhere. Aren't they? Aren't they? They're everywhere. They're like, oh, that list. I know that list. That's just like the average person in the downriver. Right? You're just talking about the average person. Remember Jim Combs? Some of you that are leaders, remember Pastor Jim Combs coming and speaking to our deacons and some other leaders. And he said, hey, if you want to go out there and you want to win people for Christ to, you know, intact families that are, you know, that are moral and upright and you want to win those people, good luck. Go for it. If you want to build your church on people like that, by all means, go build your church on people like that. But I need to tell you something. There aren't many of them left, he said. Most people out there are like one step ahead of the devil, right? They're hurting. They're lost. They're messed up. And such were some of you. And that's what the passage says. But what are you? You are washed. You are sanctified. You are sanctified. You are sanctified. <laughs> You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So are you sanctified? There's that past aspect of sanctification. When we're saved, we're justified. There's this ongoing aspect of sanctification that we call progressive sanctification. We're growing in the Lord, you know. And there's a time, there's an ultimate aspect of sanctification when we're in our glorified state. We're kind of all looking forward to that, right? Unless you're not married, you want to get married first, or right? You hear unmarried kids say that. So now we have this beautiful drama that God's given to us, and and uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, communion, and uh, we we 
trust you would examine yourself as we've mentioned this message. The communion observance is open to those who know the Lord as their Savior, who are walking in sincerity with God. If you're unwilling to confess sin, if you're willing to be right with the Lord, then you should not take communion. So the Bible says, God says, sometimes God kills people for doing that. Or people get sick or chastised. It's in 1 Corinthians there. Um, You should, if you say, well, you know, I want to take communion because I honor the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I haven't obeyed him in baptism, then I would, I would challenge you to think that through very carefully. And, and I hope that tonight some of you would just say, before I take communion, I'm going to make a promise to God. I'm going to be baptized. Some would wait until you're baptized to take communion. Some, you take communion, but the intent of your heart is to go directly and obey the Lord in baptism. And then there are, there are some of you here, I'm sure, that you just need to obey the Lord in baptism. What are you going to tell your kids? when they want to live for the Lord. Oh, yeah, well, Mama isn't baptized. Really? Do you want your kids to live in half-hearted obedience to God? Do you think that's going to be good for them in the present evil age in which we live? Uh, Is somebody looking down the pew at you for direction? Hey, get up there in that baptistry and you obey the Lord. It'll be a beautiful, I know, you'll be scared. I'll be careful with you. We'll get two or three pastors, make sure we don't drop you. Whatever needs to be done, you know. You obey the Lord in that. So when you come to the communion table, we don't say this every month, so I'm, I'm wordy today now, aren't I? But one, be sure that you know the Lord. Two, be sure that you're walking with the Lord, including areas of obvious obedience, like I mentioned in baptism. The third thing that we like to remind you about, we're glad we have little children here, and little children can participate in communion if they know the Lord as their Savior, and they follow the Lord in baptism, and parents will give them, parents will give them uh, freedom to do that. Otherwise, you know, bypass the children for now and explain it to them. Explain why you're doing that. And a lot of times, you know, we were, we were up in northern Detroit one night, and we had our family with us, and they had communion. And we passed the communion table past one of our kids. And uh, just went past them, you know. And then that night on the way home, we had one of these sweet conversations about the things of the Lord and about the death of Christ and about their own faithfulness to the Lord and their own baptism. And because we didn't have them obviously participate in the Lord's Supper because they didn't understand yet. 